Good morning, church. My name is Darren McCray, and I'm originally from London, Ontario. And as a missionary that served in Bogota, Colombia for the last 25 years, most Sundays I'd be standing here giving a, re a report on our ministry activities. I'd be introducing to my family, my wife Patty, my boys James and Darian, and trying to give you a snapshot of what missions is like, of what we're accomplishing. And we have a lot of exciting stories, you know, and those stories you could even find on our website at ourlovingfather.com. But today is Father's Day, and I have something much different that I want to share with you and that I hope will be an inspiration. You see, there was a time when Father's Day wasn't a good day for me. And really, Mother's Day wasn't any better. Either one of them brought up scarred memories from the past, memories of what I'd lived through already and the, the shadow of my, of my own anticipated failure as a father and as a human being. What do the term Mother's Day and Father's Day bring to mind for you? For some, the terms Father's Day or Mother's Day only bring negative, uh, just painful emotions. Or maybe they bring a complex mixture of bitter and sweet. Life's like that. It tends to be bitter and sweet. But my prayer is that today's message may just change some of that for you and for the people around you. Because it's a message that at the heart is about helping other people. I want to share a little of what God has done in my life over the years. And I call this message the five stages of fatherhood. Now, most of you don't know my story, or at least my story before Jesus. If you did, you would think I have very, very little to share on the subject of fatherhood. And without Jesus, you would be absolutely right. You see, I grew up in a violent, broken home. Discipline, more often than not, included brutal blows, or simply my father taking a belt to me and leaving me with welts from head to toe. My parents also had some ex pretty extreme marital issues, and they lived some pretty twisted relationship choices. And neither they nor I had any real moral compass. That marriage ended in divorce and a battle for control of me. Beyond that, my father, he wasn't physically, he, he was, sorry, physically present, but he was emotionally absent. He simply did not know how to express his emotions. I don't ever remember, not even once, him saying the words, I love you, or I'm proud of you. With the example that I had to follow, the dysfunction that I grew up in, I had none of the tools that I needed to succeed as a father. But I did have all the scars that would seem to guarantee raising a new generation of violent social misfits, doomed to repeat or even worsen the sins of the past. But would you believe that for all of that, I still had a dream? My heart's desire was to have a loving storybook family, mostly to live vicariously the, the life that I had never lived, the childhood that I felt was stolen from me. But I wanted to relive and maybe even through it, reinvent my childhood. And if what happened at home and the extreme bullying that I lived through at my, at my school wasn't enough, I also lived another lifestyle. A lifestyle that was more violent, even, even less moral. You see, when I was 16, my father, in an alcoholic rage, physically threw me out of the house. He almost killed me in the process. 
But, and I spent the next year living on the streets of London, Ontario. Now, a year might not sound like a lot of time, but a year in street life is like 10 years of normal living. And I lived all that I could without parental guidance. Sex, drugs, orgies, fighting, gang activity, thievery were all part of that experience. And that lifestyle would have surely ended up with me dead or in jail. I was a young man desperately needing guidance, but I had no one to show me the way. You see, fathers, strong role models are important to both children and to society. And both begin to fall apart when they're absent. Let's look at some numbers. Pastor Chris Vallotton of Bethel Church in Redding, California shares my burden in regards to the fatherless generation and God's desire to restore the mantle of fatherhood. He provides the, the following statistics from his investigations. In the U.S., depending on the studies you, uh, you consult, between 75 to 90 percent of men in prison grew up with no father at home. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the national average. 90% of homeless and runaways are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of children who have behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists come from homes where there is no father. 14 times the average. And 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Nine times the average. You see, when you remove fathers from the home, society gets a little sick. And that's an idea that even nature can, can teach us. In the year 2012, Dr. Wade Horn wrote an intriguing article titled, Of Elephants and men for the magazine Fatherhood Today. He tells the story. Some years ago, officials at Kruger National Park Game Reserve in South Africa were faced with a growing elephant problem. See, the population of African elephants had grown, that were once endangered had grown so large in the park that the, the park could no longer sustain them. They were overfeeding. And so a plan was devised to relocate some of the elephants to other reserve. Now, elephants are not easily transported. Some people will say, I'm not easily transported. So I understand moving big things. So a special harness was created to airlift these elephants and fly them out of the park using helicopters. However, the harnesses that lifted the animals simply could not handle the weight of the large bull elephants. And so a decision was, to leave, was made to leave the older males behind at Kruger and relocate only the female elephants and juvenile males. But then something strange began to happen in Pillensburg National Park, their new home. Rangers at Pillensburg began finding the dead bodies of endangered white rhinoceroses around the park. At first they thought, we must have poachers. But then they realized that the, the, the elephants, or sorry, the rhinoceroses had not died from gunshot wounds. Their horns, which were extremely valuable, were not taken. The rhinos appear to have been killed violently and they had deep puncture wounds. Now, not much in the wild can kill a rhino, so rangers set up hidden cameras throughout the park. The results were shocking. The culprits turned out to be marauding bands 
of aggressive juvenile male elephants. The very elephants relocated from Kruger National Park a few years earlier. The young males were caught on camera chasing down the rhinos, knocking them over, stomping and goring them to death with their tusks. The juvenile elephants were terrorizing other animals in the park as well. Such behavior does not normally exist in the elephant world. Something had gone terribly wrong. But then some of the park rangers settled on a theory. What had been missing from the relocated herd was the presence of these large dominant bulls that had remained at their previous home. And in natural circumstances, adult bulls provide modeling behavior for younger elephants, keeping them in line. Juvenile male elephants, Dr. Horn pointed out, experience must, a state of frenzy, and is triggered by mating season and increases in testosterone. In a lot of ways, it resembles uh, puberty in young men. Normally, dominant bulls manage and contain the testosterone-induced frenzy in the younger males. Left without elephant modeling, the rangers theorized the younger elephants were missing the civilizing influence of their elders, as nature and pachyderm protocol intended. To test the theories, the, the rangers constructed a bigger and stronger harness, then flew some of the older bulls left behind at Kruger. Within weeks, the bizarre and violent behavior of juvenile elephants stopped completely. The older bulls let them know that their behavior was not acceptable. In a short time, the elephants were, were following the older and more dominant bulls around while learning how to be elephants. Like in nature, we need to reintroduce fathers, or at least male father figures, back into the lives of our children and youth. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. I'd like to propose to you that we, as followers, followers of Jesus, who are supposed to become like him, like our Heavenly Father, that we are part of fulfilling that prophecy. We need to allow God to turn our hearts to be spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, sisters, brothers, that this generation desperately needs. A lot of things changed when I became a Christian. One of God's first gifts to me was to speak to my heart about becoming a father. When I was just 17 years old, he started to prepare, to me, prepare me for what was to be a lifetime of lessons. He spoke to me about the need to reparent myself, to, to heal the scars from my past, and prepare for my future. He made me aware that in, in many ways, I had never had a father, and I had a lot in common with the more than 40% of our population where they have no father active in their lives. I was part of the fatherless generation, and I needed to seek out surrogate parents. So what happened? Did I really change? Did I break the curse? Well, I'm 53 years old, and I have an 18-year-old son, James, who is launching out into the world. He's just now leaving home and heading off on his first summer job in Canada. Come September, he'll be studying geography and aviation at the University of Waterloo. He wants to be a commercial pilot. 
And God is opening up the doors for a missionary kid to fulfill an impossible dream. James and his brother Darian are my dream fulfilled. Speaking of James, no, he's not a, he's not a perfect kid. But he is the fulfillment of a father's dream to be able to raise up a fi- fine young man. Fine young man, I should say. In spite of the frailties of a far too human father with a wicked past. James is tender-hearted. He delights in children. He loves babies. He's creative in ways that his parents never were. He is dedicated to his family. He loves his mother. He even adores his brother, at least most days. And above all, he loves Jesus. In a society of easy sex and substance abuse, he's a virgin and he has no bad habits other than a mild sci-fi addiction. He, owns er- he is everything a parent would want from his child. He bears the, bark, the, the mark of both of us, but he is his own man with his own vision and hopes for the future. He carries few physical scars and very few emotional ones, yet he comes from two very imperfect parents. And while he may sometimes disagree with our methods, he has never doubted that he is truly and deeply loved by us and by his Heavenly Father. Because of the young man that James is, I think we can say that God has given myself and Patty insights into fatherhood, into being godly parents. We have the the benefit of hindsight. What I want to share with you today are some random thoughts. It is not a complete list. And any one of these five stages of parenthood could be a full sermon series. But I just want to hit some of the high points, some of the most vital things that, I, that I've learned over the years of being a father. Stage one of fatherhood is preparation. Do it early. You need to do it now. See, it doesn't matter what stage of, of life you're at. You can be a teenager planning your life, a parent with children already, or even someone who's a pensioner. Plan to be a godly parent now. Study, observe, and be ready to make changes. Prepare. Now, did you just say that a pensioner should be a God, plan to be a godly parent? Yeah, I, I said that. And you'll understand why soon. Think about what kind of parent you want to be now. I was 17 when God spoke to me about being a godly father, about becoming a worthy husband. Yet, I didn't get married until I was 33, and I was 35 when James was born. God used all of those years for me to observe godly families as they raised their children, to receive inner healing and counseling for the scars of the abuse from my parents and the obscene bullying from my, from my classmates. He used that time to teach me about women, about being a friend, and he taught me about really living biblical principles. He taught me that Great physical strength is only used to protect and to provide for others. He also taught me not to overcompensate for the the errors of my parents. He taught me not to eliminate biblical principles because of social expectations. That God is my father is my first and ultimate example, regardless of any woke thinking that says otherwise. I did a lot of prep for years, and I thought that I might be might just be ready. Then came stage two. I learned that the second stage of parenting and of being father was trial and error. 
and it starts out from the day that you find out that you are pregnant. It doesn't matter how long you're prepared, what you think you know, that little bundle of fear and joy does not come with an owner's manual. Come to think of it, neither does your wife. So what do you do? You love them. You love your children. You change diapers. You give baths. You be slobbered on. You, you're uncomfortable, but you need to be there. You need to be with them. You need to be present. Not perfect, present. You need to delight in every step and accomplishment, no matter how small. Sometimes we need to, to treat adults like that. And for the same reason, because they've never been parented. You need to discipline. You need to teach your children now what you want them to know in the future. If you envision that day that your child is going to hit puberty, be they male or female, and you understand that they're going to face waves of pressure for sex, for drugs, for partying, for doing all kinds of things that, you just, that bring you nightmares, the time to start to prepare them for that is at the checkout when they're three. You see, if you don't teach your child delayed satisfaction, that in that moment when they're in the supermarket screaming for the chocolate bar they're seeing at the checkout, or when they want their favorite cookie, if you don't teach them about delayed satisfaction at that point, they will never be able to live delayed satisfaction when they're a teenager. One of the greatest weapons that I've had for my, for my boys specifically has been from a very young age, teaching them about self-control. And discipline can be hard and painful, not for the children, but for you. I'm six foot four, over 300 pounds. I'm a big guy. I come from the streets. I look like I'm sucking on lemons when I'm in a good mood. But unless you're a parent, you would not believe the power that that little baby, that little child has or had over me. I remember James, when he was about three years old, we went to a park. And in a moment of parental generosity, I saw this beautiful uh, stuffed parrot, full of colors, soft, and thought, wow, I would have really loved that when I was a child. So, of course, I bought it for James. But James was at that point in his life that whenever he received something, he would just he would throw, throw something. He would have something in his hand. He would throw it. He, I don't know. It was, it was like, you know, it was just one of those games. You know, you throw things, your parents pick it up. You throw things, your parents pick it up. But in the middle of an amusement park, it was getting old, you know, really fast. So I just said, James, no. And I gave it back to him. And that happened two or three times. And then finally, on his hand, no. And the firmest dad is going to kill you, but he can't voice the, you know, you know those voice parents use. James screamed. You would think that I had just beaten him with, with, with a whip. It was just like, Aah! and my heart was breaking. I'm seeing this, this, this little man that I can't describe how much I love, and he's, and, and he's just wailing because Daddy smacked his hand. And two things happened in that, in that moment. One, in spite of the the hurt that I felt at disciplining my child, I knew that I had to be firm because he needed to be able to learn to take care of his things. He needed to be able to learn self-control and he needed to learn to be obedient to his parents' voice. 
Matter of fact, that same lesson literally saved James's life a few years later. But then as I was handing him the, the parrot back the last time, as he's wailing in pain, or at least in emotional pain, because it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard slap anyway, he says, Thank you for receiving the stuffed animal, and my heart broke again. But he also taught me another lesson, that even in discipline, even when he was, his heart was hurting, he knew how to say thank you. Not because it was something we had taught him when he was that young, but because he had always watched his mother and dad say thank you, and you're welcome for everything they'd received. Another thing I learned was that when you make mistakes as a parent, you need to own them. You need to forgive and be forgiven. You cannot be historical with your children. Not hysterical, historical. You cannot bring up what they've been forgiven for in the past and throw it in their face. You need to forgive them, and when you make a mistake, you need to be forgiven by them. Stage three, there comes a time when you need to shift from being just a parent and also become a coach. Intentional parenting. You need to influence their choices but not dictate to them. You also need to not pretend that you don't have a past. You don't need to pretend that you were perfect or that you never suffered through anything that you suffered through. Share with your children what you've lived through and let them learn from your past mistakes. Over the years, my, my children have come to know all the things that I went through, 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 the, through the violence, through the thieving, um, through the easy sex. Why? Because then they've never had to ask those questions themselves. They've been able to see the pain and the hurt that it cost me. And as you're being a coach to your children, bring someone along. Your children's friends that are accompanying them, yeah, you want to be careful maybe with some of the subject matter, but as you're doing life, do life with them. And you maybe have things to teach to more than one man, one young man, or one young woman at a time. And what is it the fathers teach men? There's a long list, but four of them I'd like to share is that fathers teach men to conquer their fears and not negotiate with their enemies. The Apostle Paul spoke a lot about this. He talked about being a soldier, conquering, taking thoughts captive, because he understood the, the warrior, warrior mentality of men. Men are designed to conquer, to, take the, to set the captives free. And you need to teach your children to conquer their fears and defend others. Fathers teach men to provide for their families. They teach them how to treat women and how to build for the future. Fathers teach their children, especially their boys, self-control and their place in society. They teach them about honor. Fathers help others discover their identity and vision and explore the options for future careers. How do you do that? How do you help your children explore the future? Have you ever noticed that children ask questions? When kids are little, they ask, what? Daddy, what's that? Mommy, what's that? 
What's that? What's that? What's that? And after a little while, daddies go, why don't you just go ask your mother? And then they get past that stage, and all of a sudden the question is, why? Well, why is that? Why is that color? Why does it smell like that? Why did they just go to the bathroom? Why does her hair look like that? And all sticking up. But teenagers, they ask a different question. They ask the question, who? They ask the question, who am I? Fathers guide them in that question. They look at the characteristics of their children and they say, well, hey, James, why don't you look at this? Why don't you look at that? Why don't you? They help them answer the question, who they are. Stage four. And I think this is the hardest stage that I ever had to deal with as, as, a, as a parent, as a father, is preparing for their ultimate departure. My wife would be very happy keeping my, especially considering she's Latino, would very, be very happy keeping my sons home until they're 35 and ready to get married. But you can't be a responsible parent and not prepare them for the day when they need to strike out on their own, whether that's to school or to work or just moving out on their own. And you don't start with those preparations when they're, when they're, six, when they're you know, six months before they're going to leave. You need to start thinking about them when they, when they hit puberty. In much the way as you guide them in the question about who they are, you also need to be consciously thinking about who they will become, of teaching them how to cook, of teaching them when they leave their things laying around the house instead of just letting them lay there, making them go back and pick them up. Why? Because once they've had to do the same thing two and three and four times because they haven't done it right, they'll, be, they'll develop a life skill and they'll understand that they need to do it right the first time. You need to teach them about being on time, fulfilling their word, skills that will be fundamental for them as they reach out and work in their first jobs. You need to help them understand the possibilities for their future. Don't ever make the mistake of saying from the time they're three years old, oh, Steve, you're gonna be a doctor. Oh, Janie, you're gonna be a nurse. You don't dictate what they're going to do, but you encourage them in their interests. James has gone through so many phases. He started off when he was three years old with a lifelong fascination in airplanes. When he was very young, we knew that he had good vision before he could ever go to an optometrist because he could spot an airplane, airplane five miles off. And then he got into things like costume building and origami. And they were things that he developed uh, his own interests in. We saw his creativity. So we encouraged him in those things. And we never said, this is something you have to be, but we always said, well, do you ever think about this? Could you be that? And that lifelong fascination with airplanes is he's now leading off and getting ready to study as a pilot. And as I share this message, we are in the stage where all the things we've seen and all the things we've prepared for and all the wisdom that God has given us has allowed us to take this the next step and do it with a lot of emotion and a little bit of fear, but a lot of confidence in not only who our son is, but who God is in him as he steps off in the future. Stage five is preparing for others. You see, you'll never not be a parent to your children, 
but you need to be family to so many more that don't have one. And you don't even need to wait to be a biological parent to become part of somebody else's family. Psalm 68 verses 5 and 6 says that God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And he leads forth the prisoners with singing. There was a time in my life where I had no family and I was really a prisoner to so much that had happened in my life. And God placed people around me to be my family, to be my surrogate fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters. And as someone who God has poured into, reached out to, who has restored, has taken me from a street kid to being a successful parent, and I never thought I would see the day when I would be able to say those words, I am a successful parent. Not a perfect one, just a successful one. I also need to pour that same thing into other people. God has brought me from being that street kid to being someone not just with two grown sons at 53 years of age, the reaching out, but he has also had me be the surrogate father or brother or champion for dozens and hundreds of people over the years. Now, you might think that you need to be fathered or mothered. Well, there's nothing in life that says you can't do both. Because to the degree that you've learned, you can also share with others. To the degree where you've received love, hope, joy, and a future, you can share that same with everybody else. But you might be asking the question, how do I find a father? Don't wait for them to find you. If you want to, if you want to have a father, be a son. If you want to have a father, be a daughter. Be a mother. Be what you want to receive in your life. If you want to be a son, find somebody in your community, in your church, and do things for them that a son would do for them. Reach out to them, cut their lawn, invite them to the store, serve them. You want a mother? Be a daughter. Or be a mother's son. Reach out. Because as you reach out, as you are able to put yourself in the place of sonship, put yourself in the place of daughtership, that is when you will start to develop those relationships that become family. Like I said, I'm 53 years old. I have two almost grown-up sons. But I have dozens of children around the world, grandchildren around the world. And I hate saying that because I don't have real grandchildren yet. And I don't feel like I'm that old. But I have them because I was born to be a father. I was born to be part of the family of God and to be part of the testimony of the impossible restoration that only Jesus can provide. So I want to pray for you this morning. Maybe you're one of those people that Mother's Day, Father's Day, that those special occasions are painful to you because it reminds you so much of what you've lost. Or maybe you've just realized that you have scars that God has been healing or needs to heal this morning. Maybe you feel just a little inadequate about being a brother or sister or a father or being somebody's family when you haven't necessarily had a great family yourself. You can be there for somebody. My life, my wife's life, 
We're living testimonies of that. And Father, this morning, I just want to pray for each one that sees this message. I want you to heal those. I want to ask you to heal those scars from the past. That to bring that woman, that man, to the place when they hear those terms, when they hear Father's Day, it's no longer bittersweet. Or where it's no longer just plain bitter. Father, allow them to take their healing and their joy, not just from you and your Holy Spirit, but for the things that you can do through them and for them, and reaching by reaching out into the lives of so many people around them. And Father, let them have the blessing of being able to see the results of what they're sowing into other people's lives. Where even today, that they will have people start to come from their past that maybe they didn't even realize that they ministry, that will come back and say, thank you, you changed my life. Father, I pray for this fatherless generation, this motherless generation, a generation when so many feel alone and lonely, that you would place people in families and that you would restore the mantle of fatherhood upon this generation for your glory and for your honor because we love you and the world needs to know your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, thank you. It's been such a privilege to, to be able to share with you this morning. If you want to hear about who we are and what we do, we're, we've been missionaries serving now in Columbia for 25 years, and we have our website. Just It's very simple, just www.ourlovingfather.com. You can find our testimonies, my, my wife's story, interviews, and see about the thousands of people that God has been able to impact through our ministry. God bless you.